0: Art International presents Fresh Talk, conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This episode of Fresh Talk features participants in the most recent international Artists in residence program at ArtPace San Antonio. I'll be speaking with Leslie Hewitt, Jaco Olivier, and Mike Osborne. Artists selected by curator Sarah Lewis. The projects they created while in residence are now on view at art pace in the New Works 12.2 exhibition. An artist based in New York and Houston, Leslie Hewitt worked with photography and sculpture. Leslie's exhibition where paths meet, turn away, then align again, investigates the conceptual space of history and memory through minimalist sculpture. I'm here at Art Pace today with Leslie Hewitt. She's one of the three participants in the International in Residence Program at Art Pace in San Antonio. And she lives part-time in Houston, part-time in New York. Yes. And I am here in the space where she created the work and is showing the work, which I think is a really interesting uh, paradigm Mm -hmm. to have the studio become the gallery. How did you and Sarah Lewis
1: meet? Oftentimes the relationship between curators and artists um, is something that evolves, which I think is an amazing aspect of being an artist and being a part of an artist community. And I think, because there are many people that are responsible for the art world, right? So you have curators, you have independent curators, you have institutions, you have residencies, you have artists. So all of these things support our experience of art. I wanted to use that as a preface to speaking about Sarah because I think we met in an actually an incidental way. Um, There was a Harvard Art History Conference, um, I believe it was called Bridging the Gap, that Henry Louis Gates organized, and we met at the conference and took the train together on the way back. So it was very incidental that we happened to be the same place, and because of the power of this particular conference and the artists that presented, you wanted to continue to talk about it after you left. And so we were on the train together, and it um, generated a lot of really positive interest and you have no idea at that point how things will progress. The curatorial relationships that I value are ones that grow, right? So you meet at one point and you continue to to connect, you continue to check in with each other, perhaps even the curator's interests evolve and change and it may not align with what you're doing right now, but if you stay connected because there is a, a similar interest, interesting things can happen. In the best case scenario, it is this growth, right? Because the artist is doing one thing and the curator has this perspective. And when it's done really well, when a curator really understands an artist, then really something amazing can happen in that process. So, yeah.
0: Here at Art Pace, what did you bring? What, what did you plan to do with your time here? I am research driven, so I came I was introduced to a
1: particular archive um, two years ago, and really my relationship with this particular archive and um, looking at the images and thinking about the history that was represented in, in this particular archive, and it's the Adelaide de Manil and Edmund Carpenter photography collection, uh, specifically focusing on the civil rights era. Through that process, questions arise, for me, that process ends up being generative for a work of art, and sometimes it's directly related and sometimes it's not. So it's not this like kind of very uh, linear process, but it is a process mm-hmm. nonetheless. So I knew that I wanted to do something with this, with um, what I have been working with research-wise, and I knew that I wanted to do a sculpture. And I, why did I know that? I was very confident, even though it could have changed easily. But I think my understanding of Art Pace was really the support, you know, to really focus on a project that really is ambitious. And not to say that, I mean, film is a, I mean, anything can be extremely ambitious, mm-hmm. but I knew the scale of the sculpture, at least for me personally, would have been a first. And so I really thought this would be the ideal scenario to kind of focus on one project, to have the support and to, and to make it.
0: They're all white, powder-coated, mm-hmm. and they're all the same size, yes. right? Yes. What is the scale? Um, it's 48 inches by 96. And they have this reference almost of paper, yes, which is so wonderful because you know they're heavy. It's sheet metal. Sheet metal. Yes. And so it has this, as I think you described, it has a solidity to it, but it also has a fragility. Mm-hmm. What was the meaning of the fold and the angles that you created with these flat planes? Each one of them is is different, but they have a relationship with the a fold and angle.
1: Yes. So, you know, ultimately, we're two points meet, right? There's a, a shift in a direction, um, and that was something that was also really, I think, quite elegant when you work with metal, that you can make this transformation happen in a very simple gesture, almost like a drawing, you know, like a line, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's all of a sudden completely shifting directions, shifting in terms of your perception of proportion. I mean, there's all these things that really um, can happen in three dimensions. Like when you make a simple gesture in three dimensions, it kind of has, um, I guess, another resonance. One of the things that also is really intriguing to me with my work in terms of looking at the past is how that past, it's always shifting. We want it we want it to be fixed, right? Because it's a historical moment, but our perception of that moment also shifts over time, right, so it's a fixed point, but it's always slightly shifting. And so for me, these small gestures, even though they're Almost, they almost become monumental because there's one in certain objects or certain sculptures. In certain sculptures, it's two gestures, two shifts, but your perception of the object is radically shifted just by a simple turn, a simple gesture.
0: Tell me about what difference it made to be making this work at Art Pace in San Antonio rather than anywhere else you could have made the work.
1: You're always going to respond to the location that you're in. Um, I think I came with a, you know, a loose idea of what I wanted to do. It came into a clearer formation when I was physically here, who I was here with. I mean, there are all of these things, like the two artists that were here when I was here, um, the fact that we're here during the summer versus the kind of winter months, the fact that I was able to gain access to actually go to Houston. So there were a lot of things that I didn't know for sure it are going to work out, but they did. If, if it was made somewhere else, I'm sure it would have been different. But I can't um, quantify in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: I think yeah. what you're speaking to is the resources and the support mm-hmm. for the artists in the space is so significant mm-hmm. that it, it, it had to have an impact on the outcome of the residency.
1: Yes, and I, I will add to that, it didn't interfere with the process of creating right, or developing as an artist and i think sometimes when it's so rigid in the sense that you have to produce exactly what you said or what you proposed in a way that's at least for me not the same as the the natural progression right that happens when you develop something you know you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out i mean you could, but that would be the same as, I don't know, like a machine doing it, or, right. I mean, you know, just in terms of, um, just putting data into a computer and having, you know, just the output and never thinking again about it and having different decisions, so I think the beautiful thing about making a work here at Arpus is you never felt that, you know, they were very respectful and acknowledged that every artist is different and really the kind of support that they provided was also trusting that that would produce something you know, kind of fresh and authentic to the particular artist.
0: Amsterdam-based artist Jaco Olivier decided to push his animated paintings from narrative to abstraction while he was at ArtPace. Exploring San Antonio and studying the paintings of American artist Helen Frankenthaler Yaco intensified the texture and palette of his work in the Texas-sized painting he named Cycle. How did you meet Sarah Lewis de Curie? Uh,
2: Sarah Lewis, I, uh, I, was, I was doing the site Santa Fe Biennale in 2010, and that was about uh, video art. And uh, so I didn't directly meet her, but she uh, asked me to participate and uh, so uh, she knows my work from from there and that uh, was a nice uh, successful show uh, later she asked me uh, to do a project in uh, Madison Square Park in New York so I had this uh, commission to make uh, works in Madison Square Park uh, last winter and I worked with with her as well and then she asked me to do uh, a residency that's how we uh, That's how we know each other. So you do have some history. I do have some history. There two things, yeah.
0: What I see here uh, is we're looking at a painting that is animated or uh, layers of paintings that are animated that create a landscape themselves that's flowing around uh, three panels and taking up how many feet
2: this takes? 14 meters, I know, because I am metric. The,
0: tell me how this installation and the work itself has been influenced by being in San Antonio.
2: Well, I came here without any idea of uh, what I wanted to do. I thought I'd gonna go with the flow and uh, see what happens. So uh, for the first uh, few weeks, I was just uh, looking around, and uh, uh, they had a bike here, so I was uh, discovering uh, biking the city a lot. And uh, I was amazed by being from Amsterdam, all the colors and the buildings were very exotic to me. So I was really um, psyched about uh, the way they use color here on the buildings and the hand-painted signs. And uh, I took a lot of photographs and just took in the atmosphere. Then I went painting for about three, four weeks and I just moved around color on panels a lot and I took photographs of what I painted and with the photographs I started to build an animation. I wanted to do a a landscape thing with a river in it and uh, I just started building and this is what it uh, became in the end. So So why river? I noticed that San Antonio is quite obsessed with the river, they have a river walk, it's always on every website it's the river, the river. And uh, it's also, you have a nice biking path along the river, and uh, I needed some kind of, just a little thing to, to pin down my animation. And uh, I like to have some movement, like watery movement in there. So that's where I started, and it broke gradually from there into this landscape you see now. The total length of the film is 14 minutes. In art school, I really wanted to be a painter, and I still consider myself a painter. And uh, in art school, we wanted to be like the American painters, wanted to make, make big uh, paintings. And uh, but it took always took a long time for me to uh, to do that. Sometimes it was more than a half year, or sometimes a year working on one painting, layer over layer. And um, I couldn't quite make uh, make up my mind about it, and I I wanted to know why certain pieces of paint did work and other pieces didn't, so I started making photographs of uh, uh, tiny cutouts of my paintings and watched them as slides in my studio. And uh, I noticed that looking at the slides of the the pieces of paint, they kind of much more, uh, they did it much more for me than the painting itself. And when I was asked for my first uh, international uh, exhibition, in the succession in Vienna. I was really insecure about my paintings and I thought, no, I'm gonna show my slides. So I showed a, a sequence of seven slides very closely to the wall, so you can see it in daylight, very small. And that was in 1998, so we all had this uh, personal uh, computer at, at home by then. And instead of um, doing the slides one by one, I could, I was able to fade one into another. And if you put a, uh, a sequence of slides and you fade one, one end to another, suddenly you already have an animation in a way. And then was, uh, I was asked to do an exhibition at uh, Victoria Miro in London, which is a big gallery in Europe. And I thought, well, I have nothing, uh, nothing to lose. In, uh, so I'm just going to show those animations. And they kind of, yeah, they were picked up. And uh, uh, I think the animations were also much closer to my skin than the paintings because during office hours I was still making those big paintings and at night I was just playing around with the, with the animations like you were playing with Lego or Playmobil. I think that was the trick to go for the thing which was really close to your skin because I was a, was a little bit afraid it was too playful or something. But yeah, I just uh, showed it and then it, it, uh, it opened some, something up for me because suddenly I could make up my own rules and I didn't have a whole history of painting on my shoulders. And I could make my own little animations and they're turned out to be really painterly and they're I, I wanted to move away from the from the narrative part, like I didn't want to be in the realm of animation as in animation festivals. I really wanted to have them perceived as being moving paintings. And that's how I
0: is this scale larger than you've ever done before? The three projectors. It is very large. I
2: did uh, one other big animation about from a, a moving wheel, which I uh, did on about 20 meters, because I'm, that's like a, a size of wheel can be. And um, but normally, most of my animations were like really small, only. Uh, Almost letter size against the wall, so you can see them in daylight. If you didn't like it, you just step to the next one. I really want to perceive them as, like I said, as painting and not that you had to sit down and as a cinema thing. Sometimes it's just nice to to make something in a larger scale because I also I like that kind of accidents so that happens in my paint, drips of paint, and a little uh, the texture of the paint. If you blow that up to this scale, then it becomes something very materialized, very uh, different than it is.:
0: It's almost sculptural.:
2: It's almost sculptural in a way. You can even see the, yeah, you can see the light, you can see the, the grain of the wood, you can see the shadows of the, how I it, how it took the photograph. and uh, yeah, so it's, I'm, although it's flat and it's of course a projection, you very much see the painterly gesture in there.
0: How has this experience of creating this work in San Antonio influenced what you will do next?
2: I noticed that a lot of my work that kind of one work after another It always kind of changes gradually. I, before this, I, I, I had done once a, a galaxy piece and I thought, well, you now you take a lot for granted. If you have a galaxy, you can, get, you can get away with a lot. So I wanted to do something more earthy and... Uh, this was a good opportunity to try that. I think it's such a more difficult approach to make it feel like like we are standing on on, on the floor and you're looking at the moving uh, landscape. And the few things I really uh, did change is that I, uh, I became very interested in the American abstractionists, like uh, Helen uh, Frankenthaler, like I told you, because uh, I... I don't know, she was not on my radar. I know she's very famous and I've probably seen her before, but I didn't just never had this click or so. And it definitely changed my palette because I have a certain kind of colors I always uh, come back to, um, I think almost unconsciously. But uh, here people use yellow, uh, purple, green, uh, just put it all together. And that kind of yeah, struck me as being quite beautiful. In this particular piece, I started with the abstract part, but it still it still has a lot of reference, and even in the beginning I did a whole of like, buildings and there's a whole cityscape, so it is still very figurative, and here it ends on a like a rainbow, which is still, it's how all, all this kind of narrative or figurative feeling in there. But I think I now, I'm ready to move on to a more, I feel more comfortable now to go to the total abstraction kind of thing. Because I, for example, I really like...
0: His ArtPace residency was an opportunity for Austin-based artist Mike Osborne to develop a book and an installation. Using photographs he took in the desert landscape of Wendover, Utah, Mike plays with the boundaries of narrative, truth, and artifice to create his floating island project. I'm talking to Mike Osborne, the Texan, that was selected to be in the International Artists in Residence program at ArtPace. You were selected by Sarah Lewis and I'm wondering how did you get in a position to be noticed by Sarah?
3: Well, the way that the ArtPace selection process works is that a curator is selected and then that curator is given the responsibility for selecting the three artists who will participate in residency. One of the artists is an international artist, and in this case it's Yako uh, Olivier. One of the artists is a nationally known artist, and in this case is Leslie Hewitt. And then the third artist comes from Texas, and the way that that Texas artist is selected is that there's an application process. People submit applications, and then those applications are, are turned over to the curators to review. They can see work in the form of uh, digital slides, And then based on their assessment of those digital slides, they uh, come to Texas, make a series of studio visits, and then based on those studio visits, make a selection. So I'd actually had studio visits like that once or twice before, based on applications, and then met with Sarah Lewis last summer for a studio visit, and after she returned to New York, received word that I'd been selected for the residency.
0: What did you work on while you were here?
3: So while I was here, I worked on several things simultaneously. During the year of 2011 and 12, I'd been a resident artist at the Center for Land Use Interpretation's Wendover Residence Program, which is something that Matt Coolidge and the Center for Land Use Interpretation established in Wendover, Utah back in the mid-90s, I believe, late 90s. And it's hosted uh, a series of, of artists every year since then. So uh, a large number of artists have gone to Wendover to make work uh, usually related to the landscape in some way. And this was a, a very good fit for me because I'm deeply interested in the problems of representing place. And Wendover is a particularly complicated place with a very interesting history that involves military history, but also uh, it's kind of contemporary uh, casino culture in addition to being a phenomenally interesting place in terms of its geology and its natural landscape. Also,
0: you mentioned earlier about it being a stand-in in in movies, which I think is a fascinating element
3: of its identity. Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, um, the Center for Land Use Interpretation, in addition to hosting this residency or kind of creating the context for other artists to produce their work, which is a phenomenally generous thing that they do, They also basically created a living situation there in Wendover, which contains sort of supplemental materials, kind of a library. It's not instructive in any way, but they simply make materials available to to the visiting artists that would be of interest or or, uh, kind of stimulating in some way. And one of the pieces that they've created that's there is a, a work, it's, it's in a way it's related to like Christian Marclay's The Clock, it's just a series of little snippets that they've taken from primarily Hollywood films that happen to take place in that landscape and you know, of course I knew of, of that sort of relation of that landscape to advertising but it wasn't as a, quite as aware of its uh, role in, in cinema and so there's a whole range of roles that this landscape has played ranging from the apocalyptic, as in a movie like Independence Day, um, to a kind of uh, serene sort of afterlife heaven type of uh, location in uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, um, to roles in a movie, a movie like Pirates of the Caribbean, which I have not actually seen, but which has uh, scenes that take place out in the Salt Flats and a whole range of of other movies. There's also a a history of uh, photographers having worked there, which was of of interest to me and may not necessarily be uh, immediately evident to to viewers, but Richard Misrach made a series of photographs dealing specifically with Wendover's uh, military history back in the 1980s, early 1980s, I believe. And before him, Robert Frank actually made a film in Wendover relating to a scientist named Robert Golka who was attempting to... uh, find new ways of transmitting electricity in the very hangar where the Enola Gay, the atomic bomb plane had been stored. So there's this kind of uh, sort of phenomenal layering of uh, sort of actual historical events with artistic and cinematic representations of the place.
0: So how did you come to photography as your medium? It seems important to talk about that.
3: Sure, yeah. Um, As an undergrad, I I studied literature primarily and and photography as a kind of uh, side engagement, something that I just enjoyed doing. But the further I get away from that, the more I realize that my photographic impulse is is in a way deeply related to the literary studies that I was uh, engaged in at the time. So, you know, I think that's most evident, actually, in this recent body of work. Uh, shot in Wendover, where the book that I've produced for this Art Pace exhibition is actually the, the primary form of the work. Um, I think of it as, as being more substantial in a way than, than the photographic prints on the wall, or more significant in terms of the way that it's uh, advancing my practice. So, and, and in terms of how that connects to, the, to this literary background, um, the book has 96 pictures, so it's a much more sort of extended meditation than what is possible on the walls. And it contains 13 chapters, which are sort of uh, kind of quasi literary in form. Maybe they could be thought of as little short stories um, or little vignettes. But it's totally photographic. There's no it's, text. It's completely photographic. The only text that appears is in the breaks. There, between each chapter, there's a two-page break that states the chapter title before proceeding into the next uh, the next set of photographs.
0: So the narrative we're talking about is a visual narrative that is. Where you're led through an idea or a place,
3: exactly, with the and, and through, and, and and the breaks between the chapters are sort of deliberately disjunctive. So rather than say having all of the kind of military photographs together, or all of the casino photographs together, or all of the uh, more sort of atmospheric landscapes together, I've deliberately interspersed them so that there's a feeling of sort of moving in and out of different worlds, even though all the photographs are made within. Most of the photographs are made within you know, 10 or 15 miles of one another.
0: And is that where you got the title for this exhibition, The Floating Island?
3: Yeah, the, the title, Floating Island, comes from the name of a small mountain that's at the end of the Bonneville Salt Flats, uh, several miles outside of Wendover. And uh, the reason that that became the title and is such a sort of central aspect of the project is that this small mountain uh, appears to sort of hover above the horizon. It, it, it undergoes what's called uh, an inferior mirage, so it sort of perpetually appears to be hovering above above the horizon line. And, and this sort of idea that of a real illusion, an illusion that's that's always there, and that is an actual uh, sort of phenomenon as opposed to a, a kind of intervention. Um, something that's, that was really interesting to me in, in relation to uh, the ideas of sort of fictionalizing and the ideas of narrative construction that are, that are running and artifice and so forth that are running through the rest of the project.
0: Tell me how you tied what you're doing to being in San Antonio. What difference did it yeah. make to be making
3: this work here? Sure, yeah. Well I had grown up in San Antonio so I had a, a long history with the place um, even though I hadn't mm-hmm. lived here full-time for, for over ten years. One of the things that you're encouraged to do as a resident here is to, to think of how you can do something pivotal for your practice. Um, and I thought a lot about that word, pivotal, and, and in, in my own work there's sort of two kind of primary uh, things that I do. There's the work that I do out in the world, and then there's the work that I do at a desk, in my studio, or uh, at home, or wherever. Where I'm uh, you know, working to kind of impose an order on the kind of material that I've collected out in the world. And so for me, Art Pace was, was an opportunity to uh, take this massive material that was you know, first and foremost in my mind over the course of the last year and to kind of uh, hammer it out uh, quite, quite quickly actually into a form where I could have it uh, produced as a book in time for the exhibitions. So I've shot an enormous amount of, of new work here at
0: Art Pace. What was transformative about the experience to your practice?
3: I don't know that I would say that, that any of it was uh, transformative, but I'm you know, enormously grateful for the opportunity to simply be engaged full-time on my work um, with an extraordinarily skilled uh, support staff that is able to open doors and to uh, to facilitate things that that uh, as an individual practitioner would be extremely difficult to do. So, for example. <laughs>
0: listening to fresh talk with artists and residents at art pace san antonio read more about art pace and the artists and hear other podcasts in this series on freshartinternational.com